You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am speaking to Dr. Alan Christiansen. Dr. C specializes in natural endocrinology with a focus on thyroid disorders. He is the author of The Metabolism Reset Diet and now The Thyroid Reset Diet and today you stand to learn by listening to this podcast all about your metabolism and why it doesn't have to come to a screeching halt. That myth is wrong. We learn why our metabolism slows down as we grow old and what we can do to affect it and reset it and boost it. We talk supplements, diet and how they can affect your metabolism and your thyroid health. We also talk about the effects of different diets including the carnivore diet where the red meat is as bad as they say it is for you. Dr. C's daily diet and his daily supplements and a lot, lot more. So let's jump right into the episode with Dr. Alan Christiansen. Uh, Dr. C, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Hey, Lewis. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So as I mentioned there, your, your, your two notable books, I want to touch on both those subjects today. Um, and this word metabolism, a lot of people think that, or I hear people say that metabolism is something that's just decided for you. It's luck of the draw. It's natural for it to come to this screeching halt. And there's not a lot we can do about it. Are those people wrong? Thankfully, they are. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of things affect that and it can change. You know, our body has this ability to burn fuel or store fuel. And based upon our health, we can be in a mode where we're storing most everything or we're doing a better job burning things and that can change. Hmm. And just, just for those uh, listening right now who may be a brand new to this subject, can you just explain the role of metabolism in our bodies? For sure. So, you know, right now you and I are speaking, <clears throat> we're using, we're using energy to do so to keep our bodies warm, to keep our brains going, but we're not eating at the moment. You know, there's not food coming in. So we store fuel and then we release fuel when we need it. A lot of this is done by the liver, by the muscle tissues, by the fat, and how well we can regulate all that is the metabolism. So we never get exactly the food that we get that we need at the moment that we need it. So yeah, there's putting it in and taking it out. Now it turns out that there are reasons by which it gets easier to store than it does to release. And when that starts to happen, we see more fats in the form of triglyceride build up inside the liver. And people reach a state at where they may be eating reasonable amounts of food and doing appropriate amounts of exercise, but everything's storing and not coming out. So their weight is stuck, but they're also tired because they can't generate energy effectively. Mm -hmm. And we mentioned there that you, it is something you can affect, but is there any truth to there being a luck of the draw? Some people just born with better luck than others when it comes to metabolism? You know, there's not a lot of big differences in the short term. The largest single variable is just 
lean body mass, how much lean body mass someone has. Uh, that often, do, that's different per gender, and that's a lot of the gender differences in metabolism. And that often changes as we age in a bad way. And that's the bulk of the age-related differences in metabolism. There are some extreme examples of those that have highly unusual genetic rate, genetic factors that influence our metabolism. They're not common and they're, they're not subtle. So barring those circumstances, it's largely how well we store our fuel and how much lean body mass we're carrying with us. And why does our metabolism tend to slow down as, as we get older? Is there a reason behind that that we can pinpoint? The biggest single factor is we lose muscle tissue over time and our, our physical activity, but also our, our protein requirements. You know, even if our food intake goes down, we need a certain amount of protein to hold on to our muscle tissue. And if we're below that range, we borrow protein from our muscles to keep it going as a fuel. But if we're not replenishing it, it just erodes gradually. And you can just, you know, the listener can pop in their head what a typical 80 year old man looks like if he's wearing you know, a t-shirt and boxer shorts and what a typical 20 year old man looks like. And the differences are really the 80 year old has a lot more mass in his trunk and very little mass on his arms and legs and then vice versa for the younger gentleman. And so much of that is loss of muscle mass. You mentioned him, uh, loss of muscle mass. What's the relationship between exercise, a certain type of training that is beneficial towards your metabolism? Is it maybe going to the gym and focusing on muscle mass or is it more of a cardio? Yeah, you know, all types are, are helpful. And for sure, one can think about strength training, which is, you know, done more specifically for, for bulking up past a certain size. Uh, for most people, the question is not so much do they have to hypermanage the types and the amounts? For most folks, you've got to just do it. <laughs> most people, it's the idea of getting up to some of the recommended thresholds rather than getting too complicated past those points. Hmm. Do you think that sometimes people, when it comes to weight loss, may use um, metabolism as almost a, a scapegoat? You know, they, they, they're struggling with weight loss and they think, oh, yeah, it is the luck of the draw. I've, I'm just not born, you know, I'm not born this way. Well, so there are those that have thyroid disease. We'll talk about that. And that's, that's the next biggest thing that can affect metabolism. Muscle mass, body composition affects everyone across the board. Thyroid disease affects those who have it dramatically. Others, it does not affect it at all. So, so yeah, there are differences in that regard. But in terms of effects of dieting, yeah, what's, what's hard is that I see many people that find that they can successfully lose weight in the short term. Most people have a sense about something they could do that might've worked in the past might be extreme, but the trick is how do they maintain that? And how do they not just have it come back up again? That's often a really big struggle. What do we know about the relationship between dieting and our metabolism? Are there certain diets that may affect it differently to others? I mean, there's a vegan approach, there's a paleo, there's a carnivore. What have you noticed between the relationship between these sort of, fad diets or actual lifestyle diets and metabolism? You know, it's a funny thing. There's so many ways that our, our body weight affects our health. It can be more important than almost any other factor. And honestly, I wonder if an unhealthy diet that allows someone to lose weight can still be a good thing. I think you can make an argument for that. So when someone says I did extreme diet, why I dropped some pounds, I kept it off. That's awesome. I hear a lot of people though, who will say I did extreme diet. Why? And the pounds didn't stay off. They came back on again. And the pitfall, a couple of them, uh, oftentimes people have a mindset about being on a low amount of food for a long period of time. 
And if we're more than six weeks into it, then our metabolism will, will compromise. You know, we'll slow things down to try to keep ourselves from starving to death. And the other thing is that if the diets cut out a lot of food categories, we often have a compromise to our digestive health. We often get low in essential nutrients, or we'll have that issue about losing more muscle tissue and making it to where we get really stuck in that state. Hmm. And I guess one more quick thing to point out too, is that there's a lot of ways people can drop weight in the short term, but the real trick is how do you drop the right kind and how do you Hmm. decrease waist circumference and the more dangerous types of fat? And that's what the metabolism reset diet was all about. What have we learned? Are there any ways you can manipulate or boost your metabolism? Is that a word that maybe we, we shouldn't use, but is it possible to boost your metabolism? That's an awesome question. There's a very, it's a very intriguing topic that garners a lot of attention, you know, uh, ice baths and spicy foods and whatnot. And there are dozens of ways that do increase your metabolism. But the question is by how much is it enough to make a difference? And (laughs) when you come down to the brass tacks and run the numbers on most of those things, it often ends up being like a bite of an Oreo as far as how much, how much you actually change your, your metabolic rate. So most of those things, yeah, they don't have significant impacts. And then the drawback too is that some things that do raise it, like stimulants, for example, they may have a greater effect upon raising appetite than they do in raising metabolism. Mm, I was going to say, you see a lot of companies that claim to have these metabolism boosters, these magic pills. And from what I can see, they're essentially just tablets that are just packed with caffeine. What is the relationship between caffeine and metabolism? Yeah, yeah, good question. So there's caffeine, there's a lot of other chemicals that are not caffeine, but might as well be, they work in the same way. And a lot of these are found in various plant extracts like you're describing. So it very slightly raises the metabolic rate, but it also puts us into a state of crisis and panic. And in those cases, we have a higher output of cortisol, you know, a greater output of stress hormones. And by and large, our body size is a function of thermodynamics, you know, energy in, energy out. But what happens though, is that when we're in heightened states of stressors, we change where we take fuel from in the body. So in a higher state of stress, we'll not tap into fat stores. We, we leave those things alone. You know, the body perceives high stress as possible famine and fat is dense energy we can get to easily. So we don't want to tap into that. We're much more apt to tap into muscle tissue or more important proteins during those times. So that's the drawback. The other big difference is that there are alpha two receptors on our fat cells, and they are things that allow for any circulating fuel to come into the fat, whether that's glucose or triglycerides and caffeine, it actually raises the number of alpha two receptors. So our metabolic rate might go up by five, 10%, but our alpha two receptors increase by 50 to 75%. And then also we can have our body repetitioned where we have fewer fuel headed toward the muscle tissue and more toward the fat. Yeah. I was going to say, because I've had a lot of friends over the years who are bodybuilders, they're guys who go to the gym. They, you know, they're training two, three times a day, eating a load of protein, trying to get as lean as possible. And they, they, they're taking these types of metabolism boosters, lots of caffeine. They think it's, you know, it helps them get shredded, but do you think they should come with a warning because surely there must be some adverse effects outside of metabolism to take in maybe that much caffeine at once? You know, and the, the, the guys like you're describing, the funny thing is that you have to go deep into their actual premises, you know, and our, 
what are their what are their top concerns? How do you prioritize their goals? And in many cases, yeah, the the shredded target that's their number one goal. Their health might be number ten. You know, so if if those were if those were valid, those are their goal hierarchies. And given those goal hierarchies, what they're doing might make perfect sense. But if someone's health were a step up or two, you'd probably think about that differently. <laughs> I want to. Um... To keep this podcast very accessible to the everyday listener. So this may come as a very simple question for you, but for a lot of our listeners, they may have never heard of it before. I mentioned the thyroid reset diet. In the simplest terms possible, what is the thyroid? Why should we care about it? And what role does it play in our health? Yeah, yeah. So it's a little tiny gland below the neck and it controls our metabolism. I mentioned that. And also it controls how we repair our connective tissue, like skin and hair, and it controls nerve signals, like how well our brain works. Uh, in the last couple of decades, the rates of thyroid disease have tripled. And per the type of disease, per the population, a quarter of the people or so can have it, and many are not aware of it. So yeah, if someone has struggled with their weight being an issue, um, fatigue, brain fog, various issues, there's a lot of things people can do that improve their health in general, but if something is holding them back, like thyroid disease, those things won't work. What does a, a healthy thyroid look like or act like in comparison to an unhealthy thyroid? What is the difference? Yeah. So in terms of metabolism, so we think about like resting metabolic rate, uh, how much energy we burn before we really do anything. You know, it's just keeping our bodies warm throughout the day. You know, you and me, you're, you're younger than I am, but we're somewhere around 2,000, 2,500 calories for, for males about our size, just guessing. Uh, and that's, that's what we would burn just, just at rest. Now, if either of us had thyroid disease, we could have a compromise of 60% off of our basal metabolic rate. So that could mean that we're down to like, you know, 1,200 or close to 1,000 calories for that same metabolism. And it's two sides to the coin. So in one side of the coin, the fuel's not coming out and then weight's a struggle. You know, you could, you could eat 15, 1700 calories a day, not a lot for a strong young man, but you could gain weight on that if your thyroid were not working right. And even though the weight is going up, your body cannot tap into those stores. So you can be exhausted with the most basic of efforts. So yeah, it's a very common hidden cause of weight struggles and fatigue. You mentioned that it's been on the rise. Um, I read that it's, it's been on the, the rise since the about the early 90s. Do we know why that is, what the causing factors are? And yeah, yeah. What, what can we attribute to the reason behind this rise in, in thyroid issues? Yeah, it seems the biggest single factor is that we're getting a lot of extra iodine uh, in, in the modern world, especially. So right in that time frame, you mentioned the early 90s a lot of efforts were stepped up to stamp out iodine deficiency in other parts of the globe. And they worked, it was a good thing. However, we now have 52 nations that are categorized as at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess. Uh, you know, US and the UK are among that list. So that's the biggest single driver. The other two biggest drivers of thyroid disease are age and female gender. And those have been, you know, those have not changed radically in these last short time frame but overall iodine intake has from fortification, from iodine as a contaminant and iodine added as a food processing agent. Okay, and just for, just for the listeners who might be unaware, can you explain what iodine is and the role that it plays? For sure, it's a trace mineral, it's an essential mineral, and it's necessary for the body to make thyroid hormones. 
Now, the odd paradox is that there's, there's this narrow window, and there's not a lot of difference from person to person for how much iodine they need past just per their body size, but there is a difference in how much people can tolerate. And many people can tolerate different amounts, and they can do great. Once they're getting enough, extra is no big deal. But somewhere around a quarter or a third of the population is susceptible to injury when they get a little bit too much. And so that's the issue is the very thing you need, a little too much of that can cause the same problems. Hmm. So where is iodine found? Where are we intaking it? Where is it coming from? Yeah, so it's naturally occurring in uh, things that come from the ocean. So fish, seafood, scallops, uh, sea vegetables, kelp or whatnot. It's added as a fortified ingredient in our salt. There's iodine added to many versions of salt. Uh, it's a contaminant in dairy products. So it's used as a sanitizer for the cow's teats in the milking process and it gets passed through the milk. And then the last thing is it's an agent used in food processing. So a lot of highly processed foods, they use that as a texturizer or as a preservative. And the biggest example of that is a lot of commercially baked, baked bread and grain products. So is that why um, it is becoming more and more of a problem? Because as you know, as technology is advanced, we're finding more uses for, I mean, you mentioned processed foods. They maybe weren't around, you know, 20, 30 years ago as much as they are now. Is, is that the case? It seems to be. The other things I mentioned as far as the amount in like fish or whatnot, that's not changed a lot. Dairy products have higher amounts, but also that's not changed as much. But yeah, added to processed foods, also some food colors, that's the category that's gone up the most. And so it's the cumulative dose that we get from all the various foods, the salts, uh, cosmetic products, supplements, and the combined amount has pushed many people over a safe threshold. So what tips would you have in terms of monitoring how much iodine a person is getting, the everyday person who may not be able to get, you know, uh, extensive tests on that? Is there any way that they can remain conscious of it? You know, yeah, there's different categories of people, those who don't have thyroid disease or don't, you know, mm. not suspecting it. The biggest thing is just being aware of the real high sources and avoiding those. You know, don't take supplements that have iodine. They, there's not, not necessary and plus they have poor quality control. Many have much more than they should have. I would be cautious about sea vegetables for regular use. So, so kelp, nori, wakame, various things like that. They're extremely high dose sources of that. And then also iodized salt. It's the easiest thing to make a swap for home to use non-iodized salt. You lose nothing for flavor or cooking properties, but you take that extra amount down. So are there certain people that are susceptible to a thyroid issue or is it something that anyone can develop? Well, both are true. So in extreme enough examples, anyone could develop that if you gave them high enough amounts of iodine, it'll happen to pretty much anybody. Uh, but yeah, some are more susceptible than others. We get clues about that just based upon a family history of thyroid disease. And then also categories. So per age, per gender, you know, uh, women who are menopausal or after that, their risks become higher and higher still. So what would some of the signs, what are some of the warning signs that someone may have a thyroid issue? Yeah, so the, the weight is a big one. And with that, it's more so that you, you had a sense of how to manage your weight, but now it doesn't work. Like somewhere along the way, it changed. You know, whatever seemed to work well enough for food and exercise, it just quit working last March, making that up. It quit, there's some time frame in which things seem to be different for you. So that, that's a big one. 
and then energy output. So times of day, you know, afternoon energy crashes, or you'll, you'll push yourself to do some exercise, but then you're wiped out for days after that in an unusual sense. So that's a big one. Along with energy, you know, mental function. So you can't maintain concentration as well. Words get lost more easily. You know, Short-term memory is compromised. Then the last big one that's common is, is hair thinning. Now, this is especially true for women. You know, guys, we have our hair thinning for reasons that are more so just hormonal. But yeah, when women see diffuse and even hair thinning, so not so much like specific areas and not so much patches, but even throughout the hair, and especially around menopause, that's a big sign of possible thyroid issues. And is overall thyroid health something that can be tested, checked, monitored on a regular basis? And how would someone yeah. go about doing that? Yeah, there's very routine blood tests that pretty much okay. all doctors have access to. And it is done, recommended as screening purposes for, for women once they start reaching their, their mid-40s. But when someone has suspicious symptoms, it's, it's worth looking at more closely. And if the levels are off by a far enough degree, it'll show up pretty much no matter who's looking at it or how it's tested. But there's a, there's a pretty big range between what are normal thyroid levels and how thyroid scores look in healthy people. And a lot of folks, they can have it start to slow down. It's not completely stopped. And they're in that in-between range. They're still normal, but they're not healthy. And that might take five, 10 years before it gets past that. So, so yeah, some have just obvious disease that's completely shut down, but many more are in that range to where it's not quite right, but based on how closely it's scrutinized, it might get missed. And when you talk about thyroid health, um, two words that often pop up are hypo and hyperthyroid mm -hmm. issues. What are those two and what are the differences between them? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So hyper, like hyperactivity is when the gland is making too much hormone. Okay. And then hypo, like underneath something is where there's too little coming out. And those are the main two functional disturbances that occur with the thyroid. It makes too much, too little. Now it can have structural problems where it has abnormal growth, thyroid cancer, nodules or goiters. And then there can be inflammatory disease where the body's attacking it or it's gotten inflammation for some other reasons. So we think about its function its structure and inflammation. Hypothyroidism is the most common of all of those. So it's slowing down. That's one that can affect yeah, a quarter of the population based upon age and gender. Hyperthyroidism is about one-tenth as common of that. So hypothyroidism, the most common reason for it is that the immune system breaks down the thyroid. And we call that Hashimoto's disease. And is one more manageable than the other? Well, that's an interesting question. So manageable, we think about that in terms of just controlling thyroid levels. So when it's underactive, a short-term step common in conventional medicine is to give the hormone the body is not making. So a person takes a pill that contains those hormones and that can replace what's not being made. Now with overactivity, it's the opposite strategy. One needs to give things to slow it down. So they're, they're both manageable in that it's not hard to reach normal levels. When the thyroid is slow, many people can have normal levels, but still be symptomatic. And that's, that's one big pitfall. And the idea of regulating iodine helps on that side of it as well. But then when it's hyperactive, that can be slowed down, that can be managed readily. The funny thing is that the hyperactivity is the most dangerous in the short term. <clears throat> it can actually 
damage the heart in a matter of weeks if it's not well controlled. However, it's got a higher rate of just quitting, of just going back into normal function. So with hyperactivity, with Graves' disease specifically, that's the most common cause of that. Somewhere around 80, 90% of people, if they're stabilized well enough, within a couple of years, they don't need any more help. It's just fine on, it's on its own. But with underactive thyroid disease, that number is probably more like a quarter or so where they don't need long-term help. We mentioned exercise earlier. Are there, other than um, the factors that we've already covered um, that contribute to an unhealthy thyroid, can exercise or are there any other lifestyle factors that can have an impact that we haven't mentioned yet? You know, it's fascinating. There was a recent big paper talking about just that question. And what it came down to is that, like we said, age and gender are two big things. Iodine is the next big one. They argue that there's many, many other causes of thyroid disease that come into the categories that you mentioned. And their summation of all of it was that besides iodine, it's not the only factor. However, it's more important than all the other factors combined. <laughs> so everything else there is put together is still less relevant than iodine is. So it's, it's the biggest thing. And the exciting new news that we have now that, I wrote, that inspired me to write the book is that when someone does have thyroid disease and they do regulate their iodine, they've got about a 78% chance of reversing thyroid disease. You know, many can see it just completely go away. Wow. And for someone with a thyroid issue, whether it is hyper or, or hypo, and maybe they don't get, you know, treated in the right way, they don't look after it. What are some of the, the major long-term consequences of someone who, who hasn't looked after that problem effectively? Yeah, hyperthyroid, um, even short-term, we can see, like I mentioned, uh, cardiac damage, congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, uh, premature bone thinning, bone loss, and just early death, like very early death. Wow. Now, hypothyroidism can be harmful in a lot of similar ways. It uh, can take a little longer to show up, but we can also see diabetes, uh, risks for many cancers, including melanomas, and cardiovascular disease risk from hypothyroidism. In, in terms of untreated, it's pretty unusual for someone to have severe versions of the disease and not be treated because they just feel so awful. You know, they, they just can't even function. What's, what's more typical is that someone gets on treatment, but they're, they're not back to normal. They're, they're at least in the normal range, I should say, but they're not feeling like they did before it started. That's where many people can find themselves. We mentioned uh, diet earlier and, and you mentioned iodine coming from sources like fish and, and, and processed meats. Would you, have you noticed a correlation between any specific um, diet approach and thyroid problems? I imagine something like the carnivore diet, um, you know, containing a lot of meat and, and fish. Do you, do you notice any correlation between a particular diet and thyroid issue? Um, there's really no data on the carnivore diet in anything. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, there's a, we have a lot of data arguing that, you know, a diet that's good for you in general is good for your thyroid and good for your heart. And we have quite a bit of information about like food categories, like the number of food categories we consume of natural foods is generally a good thing. You know, we'd be better off with a variety of plant foods and many types of fibers and many micronutrients. And, and yeah, just to have only one food category, I, I don't know of any nutritionists who would argue that that's a good idea for people. <laughs> it's interesting because every time we have a doctor on the podcast, everyone always has this question about red meat. It's, it's, it's quite a big topic at the moment. And if we put the 
um, the topics we've covered already aside for a moment. I'd love to just get your opinion on the effects of red meat on overall health and, you know, excessive red meat. Is, is, have, have you got any data on that that you've noticed or do you have an opinion? You know, I have looked at that and that's an important question I think about in terms of my readers and my own health, my family's health, you know, what do I put on the table? Um, we think about the data around cancer risks, cardiovascular disease risk, and we also need to separate red meat from, from smoked and cured and processed meat. So, uh, and then also we have to look at just red meat uh, in the context of energy balance. So there's someone who's eating enough food to maintain a healthy body weight, some of that food might be red meat, and there's someone else who's just overeating, and some of that can be red meat. And in some cases, that can be misleading. You can think that a food is inherently bad only because it was in the context of too much food. So let's put that one aside, because honestly, any food, any food you could name is harmful when it's more than you need. <laughs> so we'll just put that one aside for a moment. Uh, red meat, when it's smoked and cured and processed, the, the data is pretty strong that it does act as a carcinogen. The World Health Organization's categorized it as such. And there seems to be a threshold, differs per study, but between about like 10 to 30 grams per day. So like, a, like half a piece of bacon, a piece of bacon, there's somewhere above that, where if it's your daily intake, it starts to be a factor for stomach cancer and colorectal cancer. So pretty strong data about that. Now, unprocessed red meat, the data suggests that there may be an increased risk for colorectal cancer. However, most argue that the effect size is quite small. So to put that into numbers, per adults age 30 to 65, their annual risk for colorectal cancer is in the range of roughly 60 per 10,000 people. Now, if they've got a higher intake of red meat, and by the studies here, this ends up being averaging greater than 100 grams per day, which uh, like, you know, three, three ounces, kind of a small serving, but every day, like day in and day out, you know, pretty, pretty regular amounts, then that risk rather than 60 per 10,000 might be 63 per 10,000. So, so that is there. And that seems to be present with like kind of a daily higher intake. Um, but honestly, most people don't consume that much. That's a rather small relative risk. All things together, I do include it in my diet a few times a week. It's not something I'm really all that deliberate about in terms of avoiding a threshold. Um, in most cases, there's a lot of mechanistic data saying that red meat in a test tube could make these various compounds, which could be carcinogenic. However, that mechanistic data, all of that argues that those same reactions tend not to occur in the context of a mixed meal with plant foods, you know, like a variety of colorful plants, legumes or whatnot. So we don't think those things are very real world phenomena. But yeah, our biggest data about people in the real world suggests that it's it's just marginal for its effects as a colorectal carcinogen. However, smoked and cured meat can be a bit more relevant. And cardiovascular health, diabetes health, there is data on that as well. But the data that I've seen is all in the context of just overfeeding, which again, any way you're overfeeding can have negative effects that way. Wow. So I don't wow. think it's like a magic tonic that we should build our diets around, but I also don't think it's like this evil poison that one bite is going to make us fall over dead. And <laughs> Wow. It is quite scary. I mean, I, I, I mentioned I have quite a few bodybuilder friends and I know that, you know, they are probably, you mentioned the, the amounts there, they are probably consuming on the high end of the scale, uh, red meat on a daily basis. So um, to hear that data is, is quite scary and it may have to be some data that I pass on. Well, in a, if, if someone were doing uh, colorectal cancer screening, if they're watching their other risk factors, but yeah, it's, 
it's certainly a relevant thing to be aware of. When we mentioned that you were, were coming on, uh, a lot of the questions that came in, as usually come in when we have uh, doctors on the show, um, they want to know your habits. So you mentioned diet there. What is a doctor see personal diet like what is your diet like on a, on a weekly basis are there any food groups you particularly try to get in are there any food groups you particularly try to avoid yeah yeah great question and you know if you'd ask me this at different times in my life i'd answer that differently and yeah. a lot of ways i've i got into this world first off just from dropping some weight as an adolescent i was a really fat kid and very embarrassed about it you know and it was a painful thing emotionally um and the first the first chapter of that was good. Things got better for me, but I had times in which I was too extreme. There's a term called orthorexia, which is like a disordered eating from trying to follow too many rules or eating too precisely. And I certainly could have fit that definition at many points in my life. And I, I've, I really felt the experiences of being too restrictive and cutting out too many food categories. And yeah, you can find any food you could think of there are people who say that's a bad food and there are ways you could get convinced that you need to be cautious of that. And, and I'm not talking about processed, highly processed foods. It was like actual foods that our grandparents ate. And I would argue that that's not a, not a good approach. We want to have variety personally in terms of things that I work to include. I see so much data about the benefits of having a certain threshold of protein. And no one really gets protein deficient unless they're just malnourished and not getting enough food. You can be vegan and get enough protein and not be deficient for sure. But there's some, there's some percentage of you know, protein, fats, and carbs. And if your protein percent is lower, over time, you lose your lean body mass, you get a lower basal metabolic rate. And many people, they just don't fill up very well. They're just always hungry. And I think this is more true for some than others, especially the appetite portion, but it's a big deal for many people. And something I learned personally. So I think somewhere around a pound, a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass, you know, so if someone thinks about their body fat percent, whatever's left is lean body mass, you know, like I'm about 170 and usually like 10% body fat. So somewhere around 150, 160 grams of protein. Yeah, that's something that does take a little bit of thought and planning. That doesn't always just happen. So I do, I am somewhat deliberate about that. Past that point, um, I'm, a, I'm a runner these days. So I do see a lot of data about carbohydrate threshold and performance. So I don't, I don't want to skimp or go low carb. So I eat a lot of healthy, slow burning carbohydrates, um, oatmeal, uh, potatoes, beans, legumes, uh, barley. Those are some favorites, squash, sweet potatoes, and lots of veggies, lots of fruits, includes some nuts and seeds. Um, I do consume protein from vegetable sources and animal sources. Um, and I also eat rather frequently, you know, I, as I've got a higher caloric requirement with my training and I don't like to have, I don't know, I don't like extremely fatty, heavy meals. I feel sluggish when I eat them. So because of that, a lot of the foods that I eat don't have that great of a caloric density. So I've got to eat a little more often to get enough food in throughout the course of the day. So yeah, so five, five meals of lean protein, lots of carbs, lots of plant foods. That's pretty typical. Another word that's it's quite a big buzzword lately is supplements. And it's something that's is interesting because um, like we've had Sean Stevenson on the show recently from the Model Health Show. I know you've done a few episodes with Sean and I know he's quite high on um, supplements like vitamin D. And then I've talked to other guys on this show 
who say that there's not much substance behind taking supplements. There's not enough data on it yet. And, you know, I know supplements are a big thing for a lot of people because probably because they, you know, a lot of people look for a, a very practical thing they can do right away. It's quite easy to take a supplement, but, you know, you see some people who end up with their, with their daily trays and they're about 20 supplements a day. It's just one of those things. What, 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 what is your opinion on supplements and are there any that you consciously take and would uh, recommend? You know, great question. I think you illustrated too, how it's easy for us to get into binary thinking to where we need massive amounts. And I've seen what you're describing. I've seen a lot of folks that are averaging 20, 30 supplements a day and not, not a good thing. You can, even if no one of those pills is hard on your liver, the group of them can act differently. They can, they can then harm you in ways that you wouldn't expect by the individuals. And then there's also those who argue that no one should ever take any supplements. You should get everything you need from a healthy diet. And should is kind of a funny word. If, you know, if I had a magic wand, sure, we get everything we need, but that's vitamin D is a great example. We, we honestly cannot, you know, unless we're outside in an equatorial area, exposing a lot of our skin at peak times of day, there's some things we just do not get enough of. So I encourage supplementation to the extent of which the things that we need from our, that our diet, that our bodies cannot make. And I'm also something I'm wary of. I think a lot of the pushback about supplements comes from very high doses, from synthetic forms, and then also from this false dichotomy of supplements versus diet. And if you, you've got to eat well, there's no replacing, replacing a good diet. There are valid goals though, in terms of micronutrients we won't get enough of, uh, vitamin D, selenium. Like in the thyroid world, for example, it seems that there's parallel benefits between dietary selenium and supplemental selenium. And then all cause mortality. We have a lot of good papers about multivitamins being beneficial for all cause mortality. And there's arguments about whether or not that's from the supplements themselves or because it was healthier people in general. <clears throat> but nonetheless, that data is quite recurrent. And when you look at just nutritional needs and do dietary analysis, you'll see that people fall short. You know, one game I would play a lot when I would teach in medical schools was I would have people log their diets for a week and then calculate their micronutrient intake. And once you do that, you see that you're not... <laughs> You're not even getting just basic daily requirements. You're falling behind in a lot of ways. It's it's almost inevitable. What I'd love to to do is we've mentioned your your book so far. I'd love to get your reasoning behind writing them because I think for a lot of people, um, there's are, there are a lot of topics where if you tell someone that their bad habit is good for them, you're probably going to sell a lot of books. And, you know, there are a lot of people who write books with an agenda behind them. You know, they're, they're trying to push a certain agenda and they can write in a certain way. And it's quite easy to pull people towards your agenda. But your topic doesn't seem like that at all. So I would love just to get your motivation behind the work you've done. Boy, the, the recent one is a really easy one to talk about. So, yeah, there was in 2007, there was a big push to get better answers for thyroid disease. It was the century mark of the definition of the main cause of hypothyroidism. And they were looking at researchers were looking at surveys, seeing that most people with thyroid disease were just suffering. They, they were not getting better. You know, as many as a third had seen 10 or more doctors and less than 8% considered themselves satisfied with treatment. And these were massive national surveys that were done. And they also saw the rates of the disease going up so much, and they saw these two things intersecting. And so they worked hard, they did a lot of new studies, and they found that, yeah, it's more reversible than we thought. 
you know, I've been treating thyroid disease in the clinic for 25 years. And these findings were largely, and I've been just scouring the world trying to find the best ways to go about it. And much of this was new to me. And I saw this data there and I saw no one really sharing it. It was like people should have been like out on the rooftop screaming this and no, no one was. So yeah, I had to get this out. And, and you're right. I've got no direct agendas for whether people consume iodine or not, but I just want them to know that the disease is much more reversible than we ever thought in the past. Amazing. We mentioned those books and I will leave links to those books in the description below if anyone wants to check them out. On the topic of books, are there any books that you have read throughout your career that have had a big impact on you, your life and your work? Oh boy. Yeah. Countless, countless. Um, yeah. You know, I, in the medical world, I don't know. I, I reached a place in which my reading there is really literature, research studies. Uh, most of the time, popular books are, yeah, not so much things I've, I've seen or read before, but research studies do. But, but yeah, I follow a lot of books in the sciences. I'm a big fan of many of those. Uh, one of my favorite recent ones is The Big Picture by Sean Carroll. Uh, he's a physicist and he talks about the things that we do know that we're confident about in science and what we don't and where those boundaries are and just kind of our big understanding of how the world works and how in a lot of, lot of cases, we've got some things figured out that we don't have to have a lot of the controversies we have, that there are answers that are just often not appreciated. So one of my last questions for you, um, we've mentioned your work. For Dr. C right now, what makes a life worth living? What is your purpose right now? You know, the biggest thing, honestly, and, and I appreciate this opportunity is to, to share my work. You know, I've, mm. uh, I'm, I'm comfortable enough. I'm happy with my family. Uh, the career has been good, but now it's really a matter of just trying to make more of a difference. And, you know, I, I don't have the answers to countless problems that we have, but in the areas in which I've worked, I figured things out that can make a big difference for people. So it's exciting to get that out and, and reach to people and, you know, hear the stories of how it can change them. So that's, that's the biggest focus. And on that subject, where can everyone listening or watching right now get more of your work, follow you and connect with you? Easiest place is drchristiansen.com, S-O-N, drchristiansen.com. And yeah, I, each week I put out new blogs, new videos, uh, new content on social media, but the, the website's the hub of all of it. Amazing. So I will leave that link in the description also. And just before we go, for those who are watching rather than listening, is that a plush of a thyroid gland behind you? <laughs> you were asking what it was like. And I thought about grabbing this little thing, but it is. This is my this is the happy thyroid I've always got on hand. And <laughs> I love it. I love the it. Shape of it. This is much larger, but it's about they're not yellow and smiley, but they're about that shape. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> more accurate as far as the symmetry. <laughs> i love it taking your taking your work to a whole new level i love it uh dr c thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for thanks for having me lewis and thank you so much for listening everybody thank you for joining me again today we will see you back here again on friday for another episode of the freedom pact podcast please check us out on youtube and Watch all of these interviews in video form at youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact. We're very close to 10,000 subscribers over on YouTube and it would mean a lot to us if you could head over and subscribe. 
is the best way that you could possibly support the show if you enjoy it at all. So thank you for making it this far in the episode and yeah, we will see you here again on Friday.